everybody and welcome to another bp movie journal the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these i'm david and once again i'm flying solo i don't uh know how long this will last i've gotten mostly positive feedback thank you for the mostly positive feedback and uh also thank you for the honesty of the guy who said bring tyler back (laughs) uh hopefully he'll be back we don't really know uh uh, the schedule is very up in the air, but he'll definitely be back on the regular show uh, without me um, very soon next week. But I'm just going to jump into what I've been watching since the last time we did one of these, um, which was what was the last thing I talked about. <laughs> this is a problem. Um, Okay, I think the last thing that I would have talked about was everything is copy. Yes, that's right. Okay, so uh, I watched an early, uh, earlier than he was famous in America, at least, uh, Ang Lee film called Pushing Hands that has recently been re, um, restored and, and, and had a, a re-release. I'm sure there's a Blu-ray coming. Um, Pushing Hands is, um, the, the title comes from a, a tai chi and other martial arts technique i guess and uh the main character is um an old man who is a tai chi uh master of sorts uh but he has been moved from his 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 home uh in china to live with his son and his son's white american wife uh in somewhere in new york state and uh it's a uh, it, it's got a lot of Ang Lee in it. I feel like the movies that uh, that he's best known for, at least in the, in the U.S., tend not to be comedic. This one's definitely a comedy, but it also has that sadness and that that longing and that loneliness that we um, see in in other films, you know, from. Everything from uh, obviously Brokeback Mountain, but Sense and Sensibility and Ash Storm and all all of these uh, movies that have a lot of sadness or longing and or longing in them. Um, The 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 main clash is between this man and his uh, daughter-in-law, who they don't get along. She works out of the home. Her husband slash the man's son is away at work all day, so they're home alone all day uh, together and, um, and, and clashing. So he starts taking some or teaching a Tai Chi, Tai Chi class at a local, I don't know, community center or or center community center or something. And he meets another teacher who, uh, uh, makes dumplings and they have a bit of a a friendship or, or maybe something more. It's a very, um, uh, a very sweet, movie but not in a way that is in any way saccharine or cloying it's um it's there's a lot of honest sadness at the at the heart of this movie that's called pushing hands um next i uh, i put this in my letterbox because it's feature length i don't know if you would consider it a a movie sort of a concert film of of sorts um 
it's uh john leguizamo's latin history for morons uh and it's um a, a sort of one-man show in which john leguizamo talks about uh trying to teach his son uh about their familial uh not familiar but their ethnic history um as as latinos um and uh i i don't know i um i haven't seen that much of john because like was had a number of shows like this uh spoken word things um and uh he's he's funny um sometimes he's aiming for funny and it's more just big but um, I still, I've always liked John Leguizamo. I liked his his attitude and his his energy. And um, this this um, this attempt to uh, draw this through line from you know the uh, Incas and 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 other even like uh, tribes you haven't even many of us haven't even heard of i hadn't heard of um all the way through his son who goes to a you know a california southern california private school and um has a non-latino mom um is uh it's it's definitely interesting it often feels like a shorthand uh and what's (laughs) a funny thing happened in it in that something was bothering me about it. And I was close to putting my finger on it. And then John Leguizamo mentioned it. He mentioned his daughter's critique of this very process, which he's almost entirely focused on like battles and war and violence. And um, almost all the stories he tells about different, like Latin heroes have to do with battlefield victories. Um, and there's a uh there's also a uh you know there's there, there's a part where he is playing a sort of traitorous uh he's he's acting out as a, as a, a traitorous le- leader of of one of these tribes and he starts doing like a gay voice and uh the, it kind of more than the stuff that was like not as funny as it should have been the stuff that kind of rubbed me the wrong way was how like old school macho it it, it seemed um it seems like an intellectual exercise but really it's like you know the you know dads who watched the history channel for all the world war ii stuff it's like john leguizamo's version of of that you know it's his he's tony soprano watching the world war ii uh documentaries um so it bothered me a little bit but uh i still i would say i learned uh quite a bit you know what else i learned i have learned after many many years of feeling very differently i have learned to love michael bay because my next movie is ambulance and it rules so hard it is the most fun that I, you know, I've, I've said that sort of snobbishly one of the silver linings of the pandemic was that, uh, I didn't have to think about like, uh, big major studio, like, um, uh, noisy movies as much. I could focus on the movies that I liked more, but this is everything that those movies are, are not, um it's 
not, not just in its conception where it's a standalone movie that is not meant to be like, I mean, it's a, it is a remake, but it's not based on like recognizable IP, if you will. And it's, and it's not meant to spawn sequels or tie into other, you know, cinematic universes or anything. It's a, a standalone movie that is also just pure spectacle. It's ferocious forward movement. It's, explosions and flight both of like cars flying through the air um and a lot of drone shots um the the drone shots um are also not what you've seen you know you've seen these um like alex Gibney Gibney documentaries where he constantly returns to like drone shots like soaring gliding over some location that's specific to uh the documentary this is not that the drones are moving again this movie is about speed and forward momentum um and the drones are flying not just forward but sideways up along buildings through uh bridges like bridges under construction more on that in a second um it, it's it is unceasing spectacle in a way that feels like it's made by someone who loves this shit it does not feel like it's patronizing or 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 condescending and it also feels like it's made with love and that's what i wanted to get at something else about it it is if you've seen the the posters or or whatever for the movie it's the la in the middle of ambulance is capitalized or a different color or whatever it's it's um more than i think he's ever done before it's very specifically a los angeles movie i guess the bad boy bad boys movies are specifically miami and this is just my um uh prejudice as a guy who's spent all of like six hours in miami once um i i don't know the city very well um uh but la i know because i've lived here um for uh long enough that my living here is almost old enough to vote if that makes sense that's how long i've lived here uh and this movie is so in a way that i don't think is a coincidence um so specifically about not just los angeles but los angeles now right now in in this moment coming out of a a a pandemic homelessness has soared and there's um there's no attempt to sanitize the city and and avoid like tents and encampments and and stuff that are um uh in 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 the area because almost entirely downtown uh but also his choice i mentioned a bridge before he specifically shoots a drone flying over the currently under construction um new sixth street bridge which the sixth street viaduct the old bridge um was torn down for you know what many historians or preservationists i guess would call kind of bullshit reasons um uh, and and so you're seeing that under construction. There's also a part where a bunch of like police snipers are up on top of the LA Times building, which if you know now, like the LA Times building is like his, his historic, like a part of LA Los Angeles's history. It's now essentially empty. The LA Times is run out of El Segundo now. Um, it's empty, and the uh, it's about to have a bunch of towers built uh, around it. So this view that the police have on the roof of the la times building with the the these snipers um that view is not going to exist in a couple of years and it really felt like michael bay just obviously there's a lot more that went into it but he's like 
it, it feels like I'm running around downtown with a camera and capturing the way that it looks and feels now because it will change. Los Angeles is always changing. Los Angeles doesn't have a lot of respect for its own past. It is sort of like internalized the dig against it from other older cities uh, that say it's too young to have any uh, culture. Meanwhile, like, you know, there were, uh, when you say, when people say that, like you were talking about white people, right? Because there have been people um, living in this area for thousands of years. Anyway, I'm getting way uh, far afield, but you're kind of maybe getting um, why this movie spoke to me so much. But uh, on top of that, it's just a ton of fucking fun. Um, definitely worth going to the theater to to see um not worth seeing not even in an ironic way is uh valerie le mercier's aileen i don't know if you've heard if you're like me you'd heard a lot about aileen because it um feels like a psychotic vanity project it's an unauthorized biopic of celine dion like fictionalized movie that is based very clearly on the life of celine dion um you know, down to like the number of siblings and that she has and, and, and everything. Um, but the thing that got, if you don't know, the thing that got so much attention about it is that the director and co-writer, uh, Valerie Le Mercier, is also the star. She plays Celine Dion the entire movie. The movie covers her entire life. That means she is playing Celine Dion as like in one shot, one scene, like a five-year-old and then like a 12-year-old and then, you know, uh, a, a teenager and and this is a you know this is a middle-aged woman um it, that it's i'm not saying that you know she's a she's a lovely woman it's just it's very obvious that it's uh you know the scene when the uh, uh she, the her older siblings are all performing and she's peeking over the edge of the stage and it's clearly like okay there's a 50 year old woman on her knees there and that's just like the top of her head pretending to be a five-year-old standing there it's super weird and that's what got it a lot of attention. And I would say the thing is it moves pretty quickly, almost too quickly, even though it's over two hours, it's just like, you know, skipping, skimming really through Celine Dion's life, which means it moves fast enough that this kind of stuff happens all in the first like half hour or so. And you would think that a, a filmmaker who decided to do that, would be like a Tommy Wiseau type, like someone so unself-aware that the rest of the movie must be uh, of, of, of exercise and in, in weirdness as well. But that's, it's actually just like a pretty boring, lame, superficial uh, uh, biopic. The only thing that's most, I guess, uh, notable about it, given where, where biopics have gone, it feels like over the last, like in the 21st century, there's a lot of biopics that are really, Tyler and I have talked about this, really steering into like the warts and all thing. Like, let's make sure we show, even though it's usually like kind of superficial, because like, if you think about like King Richard, it's like, yeah, let's show him, show some negative aspects, but really it's all like approved by the family and stuff. So even that's superficial, but this doesn't do that. Like it doesn't question anything about Celine Dion and almost seems to be, preempting the question like when you get to like her marrying the man who was her manager when she was 12 and he was in his late 30s and she grew up to marry him like almost it, it's it like protests too much like refuting the idea that she married him that that, that their love is anything other than pure um 
uh, and I guess, again, I'm, I feel like even saying this, I'm making it sound more notable than it is. It's really just a dumb, boring biopic for the most part. Um, also, it has, this is just really nitpicking, but it's fun to do that with movies that are already established to have been bad. But one of her, Aileen, Aileen's like closest confidants in the last half of the movie is her um, makeup artist who like is her, dedicated makeup artist who does all of her shows she does multi, you know sometimes two shows a night in in, in this las vegas residency she's that he, he tours with her for years and like literally for like decades and then we're supposed to believe because she lives in this enormous mansion outside of las vegas which is probably actually true i'm guessing it's leading on and then there's a plot thing where we're supposed to imagine that this guy lives in like a studio apartment off of like fremont street in, in las vegas and it's like if that's true, that's monstrous. I I would hope that the person who has been Celine Dion's go-to makeup artist for 20 fucking years has been able to buy a house or something. Like it, it isn't, you know, crammed into a bed sit. Anyway, dumb. That's a dumb uh, nit to pick. But uh, like I said, I'm already airing my grievances with this uh, movie. Um. So let's move on to Robert Eggers' The Northman. Um, yeah, it's uh, uh, it's very good. It's um, I, I'm assuming that people who listen to the show um, are already well aware of the movie. Uh, but if you're not, it's a Viking revenge tale with a pretty stellar cast. Um, Alexander Skarsgård is the lead, um, but also Nicole Kidman, Ethan Hawke, Andre Taylor-Joy, Willem Dafoe. Uh, I never remember to say his name, Clive Bang, but uh, he was in um, The Square and uh, he was on Showtime's The Affair, but you don't know that because literally my wife and I are the only people who watched it, I think. Um, and Tyler's wife, Jenny, as we talked about on the Patreon, at patreon.com slash battleship retention. Uh, you can find that discussion anyway. Uh, oh, and also Bjork is in it. Bjork who swore off acting after Lars von Trier was so uh, allegedly so cruel to her um, making dancers in the dark. Robert Eggers got her back by being a gent, I'm sure. Um, and uh, yeah, there's definitely some of the, uh, a good bit of the Robert Eggers touch of it being um gonzo and 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 weird and maybe um close to there's a lot of stuff that would say gets into like psychedelic uh realms um but i would say okay i I really like the movie so i don't want to sound like i'm trashing it but sometimes i want to offer a corrective to the uh the consensus because people are so many people i see losing their minds over this movie it's it's quite good, but all the stuff that I'm talking about is more. I don't want it. This sounds mean. It's, it's not entirely cosmetic, but it's not as much the, the point, the thrust as it was in something like the lighthouse, um, which I adore. I, I thought the lighthouse was amazing. Um, this one, I think, I think I tend to maybe have a, maybe this is just me that I often get I seem to get bored by revenge stories in, in movies. Um, uh, 
because uh, so much of it often seems to boil down to like a terrible thing happens, which is usually when like the movie starts to bore me. I like the setup. <laughs> terrible thing happens. There's a number of people that this person who has been wronged has to kill. And for the rest of the movie, we're going to see in video game style, like kill these people one by one. Um, the other example I can think of is uh, uh, Mandy with Nicolas Cage. Um, uh, that's a movie that I love the first half. I love all the trippy, weird, creepy shit in the first half. And then once he starts killing people, it uh, it, it kind of loses me. And so I kind of feel like the Northman falls into some of that same trap where it's uh there are certain elements specific particularly in relation to the plot that feel um obvious they feel uh formulaic i i I guess um but the movie is uh beautiful there's a lot of um for a movie that you know it's a viking movie and viking tales often tend to be told in like grays and whites you know because it's the north and they wear gray or whatever uh but there's a lot of beautiful um rolling rolling hills and 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 forests in the movie there's a volcano that uh shows up and, and the sky turns colors it's it's uh you know the lighthouse was black and white uh, Robert Eggers, while not being, you know, the Northman isn't the most colorful, not singing in the rain or anything, but uh, he's clearly like, he's not just reintroducing color, he's like using color um, a lot in the movie. I, I There's a lot that I liked about it. I definitely would recommend the Northman, but I have some reservations compared to some of the other responses to it. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Uh, next one for me is a rewatch, which I don't uh, always talk about rewatches, um, but I'm, I'll tell you now, it's, I'm working on my next uh, column for Film Independent. So uh, I wa- rewatched Rebecca Miller's Personal Velocity, which is a sort of triptych uh, anthology, um, all movies directed by by Re- Rebecca Miller that, that she made. Um, all three stories are adapted from her own collection of short stories um and uh yeah i remember i remember liking it um when in back in 2002 when i saw it and i think i like it even even more now i i think this um these portraits of unhappy women and the ways in which they have become unhappy the reasons they're unhappy i think that these um really stand out more now as we've uh come to talk over the last 
you know, certainly since this movie was was made twenty years ago, um, we come to talk more about representation and, and making sure there's not like uh, you know stereotypes or or whatever that they're not playing the uh, the standard you know woman in a movie role, but there's also the opposite of the like there's the standard like quote unquote strong female character. And um, these these three characters, that played by um, Kira Cedric Parker Posey and Fruza Balk, are um, they're so messy, uh, and they do things that you can't necessarily endorse. But they're they come from uh, they come organically from the characters' uh, collection of experiences and and uh and, and viewpoints and values um they're just characters and uh to uh, i think i'm maybe it's because i've gotten older and i've lived more of a life than i had when i was in in, in college and i have a uh wider appreciation of different points of view i hope uh, i liked it even even more i think um uh the parker posley story the middle one is the is the standout um uh, but all three are are are, are quite quite good, um, and yeah, more on Rebecca Miller in a minute. But in between, I'm going to talk about the new Gaspar Noé film, not Lux Eterna, which I think is coming out later, but was made first. Uh, whatever, uh, coming out later, at least in America. Uh, no, I'm talking about Vortex, the one he made just last year and is just about to come out in in U.S. cinemas. And um, this is, uh, in some ways, if you've read about it, people are talking about it as like a change of pace for Gaspar Noé. It's not like, you know, full of like crazy shit happening, like in Climax or, or you know, super provocative shit like an Irreversible. Um, it's a much more, uh, a much smaller story but it also so that those are ways in which it's departures. But it also is very Gaspar Noé in terms of it being like a feel bad movie. <laughs> um, and this is me endorsing it. I think the movie is actually quite beautiful. Uh, but it's about a an elderly couple um, played by uh, Dario Argento and uh, Francois Lebrun. Um, uh, who live in their the small apartment in Paris that they've lived in for forever and ever. And um, uh, but she is de- disappearing to dementia. Um, and the movie just follows them for a number of of days, entirely, almost entirely, in their in their apartment. Uh, and of course, this being Gaspar Noé, there's got to be a some sort of formalist tricks. Um, uh, I mean, he run, he does run the entire uh, credits at the beginning, <laughs> um, which is different than these cl- climax. The credits ran in the middle of the movie, um, but uh, here he runs them at, at the beginning. But no, the real um, formal gambit here is that the two characters each have their own camera. So even in scenes that they have 
together, there are clearly two different cameras shooting one of them, and then the, there's a, a a split screen with like a, a gap in between. It's that thing where it's the squarish image with the rounded corners, and there's a little gap in between. And um, so you see them like wake up next to each other, and the cameras right next to each other, and then she goes into the closet and he goes into the kitchen and the cameras go different ways and and you're hearing the sound of uh, of, of both but even in scenes that are together like sitting across a table uh there's a really interesting effect this happens where you're seeing the same shot but you're seeing in the middle like you might see some of her hand in his in his shot but it's like at a different angle than it is just a few inches to the left of the, on the screen in in her shot and often the the eye lines don't match up and this that's the thing that really blew me into like oh like obviously they're together but they're apart because she's not present all the time you know um it's uh it's a really effective gambit he does um switch up who the cameras follow at different times um but uh it's it's really effective i, I but i also want to just reiterate that this movie is a, a bummer it's very it's it's beautiful it's very um humanistic uh empathetic it's very loving and understanding of 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 these people but also very um not shy not shying away from the terribleness of 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 this all and of just of getting old and getting closer to death in in, in general um it's it's a it could be a rough sit because it's quite long it's nearly nearly two and a half hours and it doesn't have a lot of incident it's mostly just hanging out with people their their son comes and goes maybe other people come and go um but uh it it's it's worth your time and patience because i found it uh in incredibly moving actually by the end all right um Let's move on to the other Rebecca Miller film that I watched. Her most recent film, 2015's Maggie's Plan. Uh, first off, it's crazy. This movie came out, like I said, 2015. Um, it's a movie starring Greta Gerwig in which she she's a professor who has an affair with a fellow professor played by Ethan Hawke. And it's just like, wow, in just a couple of years... There'd be like Lady Bird and First Reformed, and like certain segments of like film Twitter would have lost their minds for a movie three years after this, in which Greta Gerwig and Ethan Hawke have an affair. It's it's crazy to me to think that this movie kind of came and went so quietly in in 2015. Um, it has a great cast. Uh, besides that, it has uh, Julianne Moore and Bill Hader and, and Maya Rudolph. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving off. Uh, some other big names but um uh uh but uh, if you've re- returned to uh so rebecca rebecca miller also wrote um uh wrote this one and you're returning to messy women's lives but also returning to like i mentioned with the parker posey one being my favorite in personal velocity you're returning to this realm of like the book world the literature world the academic world um because he's Ethan Hawke's character is a professor, but he's also the entire movie, which takes place over the course of years, uh, is working on a novel, like Wonder Boy style. He's like constantly working on this uh, ever-growing uh, novel. 
and um yeah you can it's it's fun to do these comparisons that i do with film independent and i'll be writing about this it won't be able to attend you this but eventually later this month i think uh, i'll be writing about this uh it's fun to to see the um sorry about that the um the director's sort of peccadillos and preoccupations come into uh, relief uh, as you as you watch multiple movies, um, it, but also to see the different ways that they're approached. Because um, once again, you've got an unhappy woman who is unhappy for reasons that you might uncharitably say are her fault. <laughs> um, but whereas personal velocity is these kind of like, you know, handheld, uh, verite, almost like diaristic, like um, portraits of, of these women. Maggie's Plan is a comedy. It's a, it has big, broad comedic set pieces. It has a um, fantastically jaunty score. And it also it has Greta Gerwig at its center. And she's just naturally a very funny person. Um, but uh, and, and she's just so so adept at playing this type of character, like like her character in Francis Howard, Mistress America, um, someone who is can be uh, at once very out outspoken and uh, uh, extroverted, but also incredibly insecure and second guessing at the same time. Um, yeah, I'm surprised that Maggie's plan, like I said, came and went like it did because it's it's quite a good good movie actually. Uh, I've got two more movies, but I need to take a drink of water, so you'll just have to uh, amuse yourself. Okay, here we go. Home stretch. Two more movies. Uh, I watched. Riley Stern's new movie, Duel. That's D-U-A-L. But if you accidentally said D-U-E-L, you'd be right too. It has a dual meaning. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a kind of um, offbeat is how I'm sure it would be described by a, you know, a quote horror critic. <laughs> um, an offbeat dark sci-fi comedy. Um, Slightly sci-fi. Uh, Karen Gillan um, plays a woman who finds out that she is terminally ill, and in this in this world that the movie takes place in, uh, people who are dying can have a clone made of themselves to keep their memory alive, to keep their family and and friends um, company after they after they go. Um, so she has a clone made of herself, also played by Karen Gillan, obviously. Um, and then without giving too much away there are complications and they you know they're supposed to be a team working together to to um so the clone learns as much about the original quote-unquote um as they can before she dies so they can uh replicate her um to the best of their ability but she and the clone have they fall out let's say i won't say too much more um aaron paul is also in the movie uh but as uh, well, Aaron Paul's in the movie as like a um, uh, handheld self-defense 
like combat instructor, which is interesting. Clearly, this is a preoccupation of Riley Stearns because his last movie, The Art of Self-Defense, um, Alessandro Navolo played a, a sensei uh, who taught people hand-to-hand combat. Um, and uh, I didn't like that movie either. I don't, I'm sorry, it hasn't been clear. I don't like Duel. Um, I didn't like The Art of self- Self-Defense. Uh, the The big thing for me is this incredibly self-conscious um, move on Riley Stern's part to have to instruct his actors to deliver all of their dialogue with almost like flat affect, just very straightforward and staccato and saying this and saying this. Um, and it feels like the kind of thing that someone like a, I feel bad invoking David Mamet. Cause I know that he recently like said a bunch of dumb shit and people were mad at him, but you know, he's always said dumb shit. Um, but someone like David Mamet, who is very in love with their own language can, uh, seems to instruct their actors, his actors when he's directing, especially to do this sort of thing. And, um, you know, it works with him because he's like an eccentric where Riley Stearns, it's with Riley Stearns. It feels like a very, uh, self-conscious choice. It feels like he's aiming for that sort of thing, or it feels like he's trying to make his dialogue sound more clever, um, or funny than it than it actually is and and uh it's just yeah i, I haven't seen his first feature fault um i don't know if it's the same thing but this is two in a row now where this uh setting aside anything else i might like about the movie the premise i haven't i didn't give there's a lot i didn't give away um the premise and the and the story that grows from it are actually fun there's like some uh fun twists and wrinkles in in this but the presentation of the movie especially in the way that the uh dialogue is spoken is just it's too much for me uh i i get oh i get it it gets old for me very quickly and does not i don't get used to it um and uh, you know the lighting and cinematography are kind of like uh similar they're, they're kind of like dry and cold um and it it just seems like it's aiming for some sort of like distilled profundity that uh, uh or some kind of comedy or i don't even know necessarily what he's aiming for but it, he didn't get it at least not me uh a uh, another movie that um you will be able to read my review very soon um or actually it might be up by the time you're hearing this and I, I never know i bet at time and this is the final movie i'll talk about uh Alessio Rigo de Righi and Matteo Zappas's The Tale of King Crab. This is an Italian movie uh, that seems to be a spate of really good Italian movies over the last few years. Um, and this one uh, is, it starts in the present day where a bunch of um, man, I can't remember if they're like farmers or something, um, are sitting around talking. They're talking about like this tale of this legend who used to live in their neighborhood named Luciano. Uh, and then most of the movie, is, it, it comes back to the men once or twice more, but most of the movie is the, the legend of Luciano. Um, and yeah, it's a romantic story about a... Uh, what sort I'm looking for a passionate drunk who stood up against the corrupt prince who looked down on the peasants and, and stuff like that. And, and he 
yearned for the uh, hand of the farmer's daughter, and and it has the feel of this old um, the, these old kind of like legends and, and folklore, and uh, um, and folk heroes, and the word folk kept coming up in my brain while I was while I was watching it um, because it also eventually veers into other kind of like uh folklore folk songs it uh it takes on the trappings of like a western which is like a different kind of uh folk story um it's all very um lovingly rendered um by the uh the 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 cast uh the Gabriel Silly is the name of the guy who plays Luciano. And also Maria Alexander Lungu is the uh, farmer's daughter he finds after. They're both wonderful in, in, in the movie. Um, that's like yearning and haunting and beautiful and sad uh, and scary and violent and, and all of these. It just has, it feels like the directors, Derigi and, and Zapas are really going for capturing a classical feel of what, stories do and what they the kind of stories we like this 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 these stories that grow over time um are told again and again for a reason because they have all of these these elements um and so it has uh this isn't like some period i mean it is technically a period piece but this feels more like a um a bit of folklore or or legend come come to life and i can't not mention i'm mentioning the tone and the approach but um the cinematography the movie was shot entirely in 16 millimeter film and it has this these living colors the way that that film i mean obviously i was watching a screener um that's a compressed digitized file but it has the way that that film moves and the colors are vivid, not just because they're brilliant and, and lush, but because there's a sense of the living to them, the, the, the way that they seem to just be slightly pulsing and, and not, you know, the, the shapes in the screen don't have <coughs> hard edges or, or right angles. Um, it's all very, uh, living and pulsing and, and breathing and, and shimmering. There are a lot of shots of the water and the sunlight shimmering off the water and, and uh, um, the little bits of like lens flare turning into little starbursts around, around different objects. Uh, it's, it's beautiful. The casting is also beautiful. Not just, I mentioned the two um, leads, but every, uh, it feels like the, these directors, the reading uh cast the movie based I mean, there's good performances, but it feels like they cast first based on how much character does this person's face have? Because there's just a lot of interesting, craggy faces with different shapes and again, different colors. There's a lot of people with like, you know, blotchy noses or cheeks and uh, and stuff like that. Maybe that's in the makeup. I don't, I don't know. Um, but uh, it just it's an example of just how everything in this movie seems to have been made with such a love for the making of it. Mm-hmm.